Hey, before we get started, did you know that you can get continuing education for this podcast? Just head over to academy.flightcrit.com to find out more information. Now let's get on with the show. They'll lay there with a baby in their mouth and just huff and puff trying to breathe through occluded nares, you know, until they basically arrest. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, Hunter and I sit down with our good friend Melissa Versman from Beyond the BBM to discuss the proper management of the pediatric patient with critical RSV. As a critical care flight paramedic and a pediatric respiratory flight RT, Melissa's got a ton of experience and knowledge about how to manage this patient population. So I want to invite you to listen up as Melissa shares with us her pearls about how to manage the pediatric patient with RSV. All right, everybody. Hey, this is Sean and Hunter. We are back with our good friend, Melissa from Beyond the BVM. And today we're going to be talking about RSV and all things pediatric respiratory illnesses going on right now. Um, I don't know how it is across the whole country. I suspect it's pretty similar to what we're dealing with here in Colorado. But right now we are in the thralls of a horrible uh, respiratory season that kind of came on a little bit early. So we decided we were going to bring Melissa on, talk with us about some pediatric pearls. How do we manage these kids with RSV, bronchiolitis, and uh, some other uh, nasty uh, respiratory bugs that the kids are dealing with right now. So with that, I'm going to have Melissa introduce herself, and uh, then we're going to turn it over to Hunter, and we're going to have ourselves a great conversation. So Melissa, welcome, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. We love having you here, and uh, you know our community just really needs this information, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm super excited to do this and have this fun conversation with you guys. Um, so like Sean said, I am a respiratory therapist as well as a flight paramedic. And most of my respiratory therapy career has been um, in the NICU and PICU environment in some different hospitals in Colorado, as well as a transport, a pediatric neonatal transport team. So um, truly a love for me and a patient population I love working with and if I can educate any of my pre-hospital providers, that's what I want to do because I know that the education is lacking a little bit for our paramedic and EMT friends out there. So um, I have been in RT since 2004. I've been a paramedic, late paramedic since 2011. Um, and I started in EMS in 1998. When I was 18 years old. My 18th birthday, I went, I started EMT school. So this is what I wanted to do my entire life. Um, is I, I think I was eight years old when I said I wanted to be um, a nurse um, on the ambulance is what I was telling my grandma <laughs> all the time. So this is what I wanted to do my whole life. So I just kind of, my career has evolved just based on what kind of medicine I want to practice at that time. So, yeah, well, you know, you kind of downplayed a little bit, but you truly are uh, uh, a, a, a stellar provider uh, across the spectrum, adults, pediatrics, with your experience uh, in you know working with Children's One, and so um, you know Hunter and I are. I know I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to actually work with you professionally, as well as you know personally, you know as friends and and doing podcasts like this. So um, it's really it really is a pleasure to have this uh, opportunity. Hunter, what do you got for us, buddy? Well, I'd, I'd reiterate what Sean said. I, I call Melissa the, the vent queen. So, uh, <laughs> you know, someone that can run the vent on a baby, it a little, little baby all the way up to, to grandma is uh, pretty awesome in my eyes. 
So Melissa, <clears throat> as everyone listening to this podcast knows, RSV is obviously huge right now. Um, you were kind of telling me though, we usually don't see a spike with RSV until kind of December and kind of into those spring months. Is that is that normal when we usually see this? It's a little early for us. Yeah, it's pretty early. So we normally see a big spike um, the end of December, early January, you know, after those kids and families are all together for holidays and stuff like that. So but the numbers we're seeing right now are actually higher than we normally see in December, January, February. Okay. So that kind of, it kind of makes this popular. It makes us worried a little bit, you know, is this a first spike? Is there going to be another spike? Like, where is this going to end up really? Because now, now we're all going to be together for Thanksgiving and then we're all going to go back to school and then we'll be together for Christmas. Then we'll all go back to school. So Right. The numbers really are pretty astronomical right now. Um, I know last week when I looked, 70% of the pediatric beds nationally were occupied. And I'm guessing it's way higher than that. Right wow. Now. Wow. And that is scary, especially going into the holiday season. Right. Right? People haven't yeah. even gotten together yet. Right. Yeah. And, you know, with them whole, with, you know, just this RSV spike, you worry about all those other things, you know, there's still kids getting influenza and COVID and rhino entero and pneumonia and, you know, falling and hitting their heads and getting in car accidents and skiing accidents. So, you know, the bed space is a really big problem if we don't have the pediatric ICU beds to take care of all the other problems that are always still happening. Right. Yeah. I know we're starting to, um, to the the people that work on the front lines in the hospital and the ambulance, I know they've been seeing it. We're just starting to see this a lot in the flight world as well. So um, yeah. yeah, I think it's just going to get worse. So when we talk about RSV, um, RSV, I think this is kind of helps me out here. Is, is it's just a virus, but really what we're seeing is the disease process or or the uh, pathological presentation of it. So usually we're going to see bronchiolitis or pneumonia, but usually correct me if I'm wrong, this is a lower airway thing we're going to see with these kiddos. Yeah. So if they kind of get that initial virus, that RSV virus that happens. And I always tell people it's an adult size cold in a baby. Um, so, you know, you have really those adult amount of secretions is what I try and convey to people, but that, that virus kind of progresses into bronchiolitis, you know, so all the inflammation um, that happens in those lower airways and those lower airways really, it's easy for them to collapse. So that's why you see all the work of breathing and those kids trying to really work through the amount of secretions and inflammation that's happening lower down in their lungs. And, you know, that lower part of your lungs is really where you exchange CO2 and oxygen. So if you are really mucking up that process down and down there, that's, they can only maintain for so long. So they're having to do some pretty awesome maneuvers with their chest wall and respiratory rates and stuff like that to really try and compensate for that swelling and the amount of, of secretions that their body's making response to that virus, you know, and then when they can't really manage those secretions that can easily go from bronchiolitis to pneumonia when you can't clear those secretions and things like that. And all these secondary infections, we're seeing a lot of RSV and croup together. So now you have a lower airway problem with an upper airway problem. So that's really freaking people out because um, not always those therapies are, you know, cohesive together. 
Sure. Right. What what age group or what patient population uh, makes you nervous? If, if if you're in the hospital, you're doing a transport, and you have a children presenting with these symptoms, um, <clears throat> I kind of the way I understand it is most kids will get at least a RSV uh, before they're two. Is it kind of that mm-hmm. younger age where we're going to be seeing this versus these young um, young children? Yeah, we're really seeing the so the zero to six month is the big high. Um, acuity type kids that we're seeing. So because they don't have the immunity built up yet, you know, they they don't have their full slew of vaccines yet. Um, and honestly, they, they're harder to, to assess if you're not used to that patient population. So you're really not um, maybe catching subtle signs that a pediatric provider would. Okay. And the bronchiolitis, I guess for our listeners and for me as well, bronchiolitis can definitely be in adults, but it, it like you said, it's like an adult cold, but it's so detrimental because these kids' airways are so tiny to begin with, right? And then yeah. we have inflammation of the bronchial or small airway. So that gets even tinier and then you're adding the mucus on in there. So this is more detrimental, especially for those six-month kiddos versus if like a five-year-old gets a dental virus or something and they have a uh, bronchiolitis, that six-month-old is going to be sicker. Yeah. And you can, you know, those older kids, you can make them cough. You can make them drink when they don't want to. You can make them do all these things that you really can't make a baby do. Sure. And, you know, being able to talk with them and say, you know, how do you feel, you know, like, and and really under, really get that mental status check, really, um, I think is why that lower patient population is harder to uh, assess because, you don't get that back and forth with those kiddos, you know, like, or the mom saying, Hey, they're normally really talkative. So them laying on the bed like this is really weird. Really. Right. Weird. right. So kind of presentation with these kids um, from just your, you know, outpatient to your ER, um, you know, rapid breathing, but once they get more sick, uh, fever is pretty common with them as well. Correct. They usually have some degree of a fever. Um, and then kind of wheezing and grunting is, is when you know they're getting farther ahead, correct? Or, or worsening down that, that path. Yeah. And, you know, wheezing is really um, kind of like a blanket term that we hear. So when I listen, I think I know just from listening to so many breast sounds, um, a true wheeze from, you know, like, in, like inner airway inflammation and versus like a wheeze or a high-pitched um, turbulent noise that you hear just from air trying to squeeze through tinier airways uh-huh. or, or like that um, kind of like that CHF wheeze where you, it's more ronkerous, but it's kind of higher pitched, you know? So I think I, I do, I can do a good job at telling whether, whether it's like an, like a wheeze that needs albuterol or a wheeze that needs help keeping that airway open. Right. You know? So when I say help keeping that airway open, um, number one, I'm going to help clean that kid's airway out and maintain right. their patients. And number two, I'll put in, I'll put on external PEEP with some sort of mode, um, whether it's hyponasal cannula, those types of things. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a little bit. But just knowing I need to help help that kid keep their airway open. So number one, I need to clean out the secretions. Number two, I need to add some positive pressure to that kid's airway and help him stent his airway open because he's really working hard and it's not working. Well, I like that you brought that up because, you know, the wheeze... 
I think we always think of obstructive physiology or asthma, but um, I, I always love to talk about the cardiac wheeze as pulmonary edema. You know, that's not necessarily bronchoconstriction. That's um, the fluids being the interstitial space and stuff like that. You're not going to give albuterol to a guy with cardiogenic shock, just like we'll talk about albuterol here, but it's not the same mechanism, but it's still causing that turbulent air to give that wheeze, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you really, like if you hear wheezing, but also hear like guy or or that rumbling in their chest, uh, that to me indicates no albuterol. Right. Okay. Good to know. So let's dive in kind of the meat and potatoes. I think it's treatment. Um, cause these kids are scary. Um, for Melissa, it's another day in the park for me and Sean. <laughs> um, but that's honestly, to... they're so under, they're so under resuscitated and they're really, really sick right now that, um, I wouldn't say I'm scared of them, but <laughs> they, the, the feeling of urgency when I walk in the room is really present for me. Right. Okay. Knowing that they've, they're at the end of this compensatory mechanism that they, they're so famous for. Right. So I need to, I need to get my butt in gear and really intervene and do some things quickly. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that like as adult providers, you know, many of us don't see a lot of kids and, and we're taught this whole, you know, substernal retraction, intercostal muscle retraction, you know, abdominal breathing. But, you know, I would, I would venture to say that, you know, those of us who, I guess anybody who's primarily treating pediatrics or pre-hospital, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, those of us who are treating primarily adults or even pre-hospital, like how often have you truly seen one of these kids with, you know, this global, um, compensatory uh, mechanisms, you know, substernal intercostal retractions, but we're seeing that a lot with these kiddos. And, yeah. you know, I mean, my, my experience, you know, of recently has been seeing these kids and going, Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's time to get busy. Right. It, it's, yeah. This kid needs our help. And that can be scary, especially if we're not used to treating these pediatric patients, but just going back to what we, what we learned you know, early on in our training that, these are indications of kids who are really sick, right? And especially if you add on top of that, now they're starting to become uh, obtunded or bradycardic. You know, these are not kids yeah. that we can mess around with. Yeah, I with that chest wall assessment too. Like, I tell people, the number of retraction sites really will let you know. So if a kid has more than two retraction sites happening, and then and then all. So the higher the retraction site um, shows you really how sick. So, you know, a little bit of nasal flaring, a little bit of subcostal, you know, which is down below, like by their diaphragm, that area. Um, you know, they're, if I, they're in the like, early stages of compensating, you know, right. once those retractions really start to go upward. And then if you see um, suprasternal, tracheal tugging, um, head bobbing, anything like that, you do not have time to waste that is not a kid that goes on high flow nasal cannula. You know, that is a kid that is at the end of all the, of all, of all the compensatory mechanisms his body has to, to offer. And we really need to do something quickly. So yeah. um, really just knowing if you have more than two retraction sites, um, it's time, it's time to do something big. And if you refer back to like that pediatric assessment triangle, you'll see that, you know, one side is appearance, you know, so if that kid is pale, um, is not interacting well, that type of thing, you know, then that side has a derangement. And then that work of breathing side, 
you know, if they have retractions, that also is a derangement. And then you couple on their circulation, you know, if that kid's tachycardic um, and tachypnic, I mean, that's a kid that has something wrong with all three sides of that assessment triangle. That's a kid that's in shock, you know, and we are not, I think, collectively giving them that credit and treating them like we would with an adult in shock, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of reminding people like those normal, well, you know, what is a normal heart rate for a six month old, right? We're not very good at that, right? Whether it's keeping a reference card or just spending some time studying that, like having a clear understanding of, of what those normal vital signs are can go a long way to helping you recognize these kids or, you know, how bad. Yeah. They are. And I don't even, you know, as with all the patient populations I take care of, I still look, I mean, you guys know, working with me, I have a pocket full of reference guides. Um, It's like my brain at two in the morning, but I will, when I get dispatched to a nine month old, uh, when I write down a few things on that piece of paper, before I get there, I write up at the top, a normal heart rate range, a normal respiratory rate range, um, normal blood pressure, even though I really don't care too much about their blood pressure. I'm, you know, I do care about their blood pressure say that, but, you know, other, other things that I'm looking at before they're, you know, as well as writing, you know, what size ET tube, and then I'll calculate out a certain amount of drug dosages, um, ahead of time. But I still write those things down because what I see a lot of times is, is, you know, a two-year-old, you go on a two-year-old and I'll hear, you know, oh, well they had a heart rate, a fast heart rate, but they always do. Well, one thirty is too fast. You know, that's too fast for that kid. So if you know that right when you walk in and you're like, already, you know, this kid's tachycardic, they're tachypnic, so their respiratory rate is high and they have multiple um, retraction sites, that's a kid in full-blown cardiorespiratory shock and we have to figure that out. Yeah. So let's start kind of diving in with, with our treatment. So let's start with suction because you've reiterated many times to us while we're working how important that is. Um, so if you're walking in to the room and you're going to suction this kid, kind of walk me through how you set it up. Um, take me through how you measure, um, how deep you feel is appropriate to go. Um, and, and then we'll kind of go forward from there. Yeah. So I will, when I walk in the room and if they are tachypnic and multiple retraction sites, the first thing I'm going to do is suction them because that is really babies are obligate nose breathers. So they, if they can't keep their nares fully cleaned out and open, that's not a patent airway really. And so you see these kids because of, you know, how long it takes for those synapses to form in their brain, they'll lay there with a binky in their mouth and just huff and puff trying to breathe through occluded nares, you know, until they basically arrest or near arrest. So the first thing I do when I walk in the room is suction them. So um, I will have a couple different size suction catheters. You know, it, you have to try and get the biggest one you can because normally with RSV, there's a, such a large amount of secretions. And depending on how dehydrated they are, they're really thick secretions. So um, I'm always ready. You know, me, you guys always have stuff with me. So like in my pocket during RSV season, I'm always going to have like a couple different size suction catheters, you know, this is the little itty bitty teeny ones, but you know, eight and eight, 10 French when you're walking in on a pediatric um, patient is really kind of standard. A couple of pink saline bullets in your pocket um, to really get past, you know, the closer the boogers are to the outside, the harder they're going to get. So 
a lot of times you just do a couple drops um, of saline in their nostril before you suction them to loosen it up a little bit so you can actually pass that suction catheter. Um, and then just measuring like from their nair to the, I measure from their nair to the back of their ear. Okay. Um, and that'll get you in that posterior oral pharynx. And you don't want to go too far. You know, we talk all the time about these kids and their vagal um, reactions and stuff like that. So you don't really want to bury this sucker. Just like when you're suctioning kids' ET tubes, we don't keep going until you hit resistance. A lot of times that's common practice in the adult world, um, even though it shouldn't be. But we, it's really discouraged in the pediatric world because of how sensitive um, that is, that response is to that. So, and then just not staying in there very long. You need to go in quickly and you just suction on the way out. And if you need to give them a second to recover, that's fine. Go into the other side. I'll give them a second to recover and I'll do it as many times as I need to until I think I feel like it's actually cleaned out. Okay. Um, are you always doing those drops before you go in? Pretty much unless, you know, unless, you know, there's those pictures of just snot pouring out of their face. <laughs> yeah. so, um, but you know, this is like a gross thing to talk about, but if, you know, like if at, at when I pull out the suction catheter and there's like thick boogers hanging on the end of it, then I'll add more saline because that's, those need to be thinned out so I can actually suck them out. Okay. So, so I have and, a couple questions uh, to touch on. So like, yeah. you know, we've all seen these, these soft tip, you know, suction cones just for getting in inside, just yep. inside the nair. Effective, not effective? Uh, not effective for um, these deep, these patients that need to be deep suction. So I'll deep suction them no matter what. And then yep. I do like that, like the mushroom tip suction, that little one. And once I know that they're cleaned out, like their nasal pharynx is cleaned out, that is really great for helping them clear out and deal with all the things that are stuck up in their sinuses. Yeah. So um, I don't know, obviously RTs love suctioning. It's like my favorite thing. If you put that, that mushroom tip on one side and then you put saline on the other side and then apply suction while you squirt that saline, um, you have to do both simultaneously or else you'll drown that kiddo. But um, that will, that suction will pull that saline through and just pull all sorts of boogers Nice from inside there. And so once you really do a good nasal suction and T-suction, um, you can maintain their, their nose most of the time that way. Beautiful. Okay. Love that, that. First 24, 36 hours that kids are like admitted when I took care of them, um, between me and the nurse, you know, sometimes you're suctioning every 20 minutes. Wow. Those secretions are just oh so overwhelming for those kids, you know. And if if they are up there and then the kids can't take care of them, you don't suction them out. They just start to seep down into their lungs, and that's where you start getting the bronchiolitis, the pneumonia, and the BQ mismatch, trouble with oxygenation. So um, if you can really do a good aggressive job keeping their upper, keeping those secretions out of their nose, clear of their nose, then hopefully we can stave off those bigger infections. Love it. That's great. So important to know when you're in the hospital room for our uh, listeners, if if someone said I suction, it's if you just see the Yankau or the mushroom tip with boogers on it, you really want to know what type of suction we have. You really want that NT suction and then maintenance can be the mushroom tip or the, or the soft tip suction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, even if most of the time, even if people say, oh, I suctioned right before you got here, um, I'll still do it myself, especially if I'm about to go on the high flow nasal cannula or a non-invasive motor <laughs> I really need to make sure 
those those airways are clear. Otherwise, right. that therapy is not going to work at all. Right. Okay. Um, do you feel so if, if you have a, a a patient that's very hypoxic, but you do want a suction, let's say you just got there, do mm-hmm. you try and kind of you know pre-oxygenate them a little bit before you're going down and give them some recovery or yeah, you can try, but um sometimes because of the amount of secretions, no matter how much oxygen you put in that upper airway, it's never going to get transferred down to where they are. So sometimes literally, even if they are hypoxic and really tachycardic and everybody's freaking out, it seems people, it seems kind of rude when you walk in the room and you're like, oh, I'm just going to suck in the nose. But honestly, that can really recover these kids that are on the tip of there that are basically in peri-arrest. So, okay. um, I, I mean, be prepared, obviously I'm going to have like, you know, my anesthesia bag with a mask on it, ready to go, or your BBM with your mask on it, ready to go. Um, so that you can, like, if I needed to suction and that kid looked like really bad afterward, then I could put the mask on and give them some CPAP through there and try and, um, kind of recover them that way. But in the beginning, sometimes you just have to go in there and do these tougher kind of procedures just to get them stable again. Right. Kind of like you said before, right? It doesn't matter how much oxygen we're shoving down in their lungs if they're full of gook. Yeah. It's never going to get there. And just a last tidbit on it for people that haven't done it. You do want to make sure you're securing them, right? So sometimes this is a two-person job, whether you're going to swaddle them or someone's just holding their head because I would not like it. It's like a COVID Mm -hmm. test, I feel like. Uh, So just make sure you're securing them. And then you want that bevel towards the septum. Is that correct? Or Yeah. So really angle that bevel toward like toward their septum, like normal. Um, You shouldn't have to force very much. You just do a lightward upward and backward pressure. So make sure you're not completely going up. Um, Remember that, you know, once you go up a little bit, that nasal passage will go, will start to be horizontal. So just kind of trying to make that catheter follow, you know, a projected track that you have um, will help with the trauma of it. And then um, holding them, like holding them still, just like your IVs and things like that. So really a good swaddle. And then um, most of the time, this is probably a two-person procedure. So I swaddle them really, really tight, whether they like it or not. Um, And then someone really needs to hold their head still because, you know, going back and forth, their nares will bleed easily. You know, just like all the other little um, tissues in their body they are just a little extra sensitive and sometimes it'll just overshoot its response. So their nares will bleed really easily. We know that when we intubate them, that epiglottis can get really angry really quickly. So, and then same thing, why, you know, why they can um, bronchospasm more than adults do is all has to do with that hyper reactivity of all those tissues in their body. So um, really holding them still. And that became a big thing because when you do RSV tests, and any sort of um, nasal aspiration, if there's blood in it in the hospital, it's not a good sample. They can't test it. So really keeping them still, like that's how I learned to do that so that my samples were really good. <laughs> and then you don't want a, a kid with a big bloody nose that you're about to put on a iPad mask, you know, right. that's a disaster. Right. <laughs> okay. So overview of suction NT suction is going to be king here. Uh, mushroom or soft tip is going to be maintenance. As far as measuring, we're going to go nose back to ear, five, six, or eight or 10 French. And uh, there's really no limit on it just until you feel like clinically they're doing better. 
Um, if yeah. they're hypoxic, it's probably because the boogies. So we need to get those boogers out either way. Yeah. Um, and then make sure we're securing them and bevel towards the the septum. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So let, let's go into <clears throat> kind of oxygenation with these these kiddos. Um, I, I feel like we're seeing a lot of high flow nasal cannula um, kind of starting, and then we'll go into non-invasive. What are you, some of your pearls with, with high flow uh, as far as what is your dosage and humidity or not, and uh, going from there? <clears throat> so high flow nasal cannula has been around for a long time in, in the pediatric neonatal and pediatric world. Um, when I started in 2004, there were, there were already high flow nasal cannula systems like Vapotherm and stuff like that. Um, already in the NICU. So it's something that the, we know is effective with kids, um, but we know anytime that we're going to put that amount of flow in their nose, because that's what our nose does. It humidifies the air that um, goes into our lungs, and it also catches some of those germs and stuff like that that our body is exposed to. So anytime we're going to put anything, force air through their nose, um, and we ruin their chances of humidifying it themselves. So they have to have humidity on there. Okay. Um, I, it, it would be nice if it could be heated, but I know that's not always something we can do in the transport environment. But to me, it's non-negotiable. If I can't humidify that air, then I'm going to do a different type of therapy. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do hyponasal cannula without humidity. Um, you know, and that's, my personal opinion, I think you'll hear a lot of other opinions around, but um, just from seeing how these kids look, it's just, why would you add cold, dry air to a kid that's already not maintaining that amount of secretions? And you're just going to turn those secretions thicker and drier and turn it into concrete and make, make a bigger problem for yourself. So right. we can think we're deploying this really great therapy, but in actuality, we may actually be hurting these kids without doing it 100% the way it's supposed to be done. Right. Okay. And as far as your dosage, where are you, <clears throat> are you doing CCs per kilos? And if you are, what's your upper, upper limit for you um, uh, personally, uh, where you're, you want to go to non-invasive next? Yeah. So this is very, a very gray area. So a lot of different places have protocols that they use. Um, and I will tell you that a lot of the protocols are a lot more liberal on the high flow than I would be, that I'm personally comfortable with. So, you know, like the, like we're comfortable using like one to two liters. That's what we see a lot in the adult population is one to two liters per kilo. So then we see a lot of those places that do adults and then, you know, have to manage peds for a short amount of time they've kind of turned that same protocol into a PEDS protocol, but that is really an, a really high flow. Two liters per, per minute per kilo is very high. Okay. So think about, you know, a seven kilo baby, like a two, three, four month old baby. You could technically on that protocol, you could go up to 14 liters before you switch therapies or whatever. So, um, for me, I don't, you know, high flow is really, it's before you need actual CPAP and BiPAP. Okay. You know? So if I walk in and a kid, you know, I know that they're farther along in their disease process and they really need a lot of PEEP, you know, and they really need, if they actually need help augmenting their tidal volumes, 
I will not use the hypo-nasal cannula in a BiPAP mode, um, and I will not use it for excessively high hypo-nasal cannula leader flow. Okay. Um, with the little tiny babies that are obligate nose breathers, if you have a ventilator and you can dial in a certain amount of PEEP um, and pressure support and FiO2, I think that that is, and then you're also giving humidity, I think that you can give CPAP through the high-flow nasal cannula just fine. Um, but I think that people are really missing that missing that chance to escalate care, and they're keeping that high-flow nasal cannula on way too long and turning up the flows way too high. Um, you know, if you walked in, I mean, I can't even imagine what actual kind of PEEP that, that 14 liters would be given a seven kilo baby, you know, and then you try and, you know, that's probably double digits of PEEP. I yeah. would, you know, there's no, I mean, we don't have a real way to tell, but if that kid still looks bad on that, you can imagine then when you try and put them on your BiPAP settings, your BiPAP settings are not going to be adequate because they're probably going to need at least 10 of PEEP at that point, you know? So that's kind of what we're seeing is that um, we're really just keeping this hypo-nasal cannula on way, way too long. Okay. We're using it for nasal cannula, CPAP, BiPAP, all these things. And really for me, it is that therapy in and of itself. And if that kiddo, in my opinion, needs CPAP or BiPAP, I'm going to change to um, a face mask. For them. Okay. Okay. So once we're kind of approaching that 10 liters of flow or higher, you're thinking we got to, we got to move to, uh, not yeah, and it's, it would actually be a lot less for me to be honest. Okay. Know? Um, and especially, you know, our pediatric centers here in Colorado, that is their threshold is a lot lower than what we're seeing in the, that we're what's seeing like adult teams and, um, you know, adult hospitals that are just trying to triage these kids. Those, when they get a call and they say, Hey, we have a kid that looks bad on 10 liters of high flow. That that pediatric ICU knows that 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 kid needs more therapy need, needs higher therapy than that. Okay, they probably wouldn't go that high. Gotcha. So, so, go ahead, John. Yeah, I was just, I was just thinking. So, like, you know, for those who might be looking for you know, kind of a, a black or white, and we know it's never black and white, but you know, that yeah. trigger is like if you're getting close to that one liter per kilo or ten liters of flow. That's that's a solid time to be thinking, is this adequate, right? If, if you hear yeah. that 10 liters, you should really be thinking, let me take a real good look at this kid and decide whether or not I need to escalate right now. Yeah, that double digit flow is probably that, you could definitely say that. If they don't look good on one liter per minute per kilo and or 10, 10 liters or greater, yeah, it's really time to look at an actual non-invasive mode of ventilation. Nice. So let's get into that. So uh, non-invasive, <clears throat> but you, your preference um, is going to be the scuba mask, correct? Yep, I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> when we're when we're setting up these uh, setting up these parameters for these kiddos, are you focusing on true BiPAP? And uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is what what do you think is you know, settings you're going to start as far as your IPAP and your EPAP goes. Do you think these kids are more going to be uh, PEEP sensitive where you're like, we need more PEEP than IPAP? Or is it more that you want that nice big difference between your IPAP and EPAP? Yeah. So just so if people are wondering, when we talk about the scuba mask, we're talking about um, a full face mask. So it, it literally covers their entire face. So the one that um, I like is a Respironics full face mask. You can look at that. Um, with yeah. the scuba mask, it's, if you start like 
Googling a scuba mask, you might not see what we're actually talking about. <laughs> yeah, we'll, um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people okay. can actually go over and check it out. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, so I would say it has to do with whether if we were to put them in like, if I'm going to separate them between phase one and phase two, I would say, you know, the early onset RSV kids that really um, are in the throes of the big secretions and do not have or are not headed toward a secondary infection, that is a kid that's going to look great on CPAP. Um, That is a kid that has a nice, good respiratory rate, a good patent airway. They just need help managing their secretions and they need help stenting those airways open so they can continue to maintain and work through those secretions. So um, that, that is a kid that you can just put on CPAP with um, some FiO2. Um, But really remember, if you refer back even into your adult world to your ArtsNet protocol, you know, we're seeing kids on like five of CPAP and 100%. Um, You know, five is normal. Five is normal physiologic deep in our body. So I tell people, not only do you need to give back what's normal, but really remember you need to give more. So everybody thinks, you know, oh, I gave them five of PEEP. They they need easily eight to ten. Okay. About these initial RSV kids, you know, um, five is the least that I'm going to go, but I'm going to go up real quick. And then most of the time, you really don't need hardly any FiO2. I mean, when I was on a my the children's transport team, we transported um, high flow nasal cannula kids and CPAP kids um, on. 21% a lot of the time, you know, or the 30s and 40s percent, you know, range, but they really needed like eight, 10 a peep or whatever high flow, but they didn't need a ton of FiO2. You know, if you help them with the secretions, you remove that physical barrier and then help them stent their airways open, they'll oxygenate just fine. They don't need a ton of FiO2. So that could be an indication for you if you're having to keep going up on the FiO2. I would stop and just start going up on the peak. You know, you're, those two are complementary, really. You know, I would almost say they need to move up together um, where, you know, if I'm going to tell people how to do that, you know, versus me, who's probably just going to go up on the peak really quickly before I go up on the FIO2. Right. Um, but like in the adult world, I tell people really move those two together. But, you know, we all know when we walk in the room, People are on five a peep and hundred percent on whatever vent settings and right. still are not oxygenating well. And, you know, they, whatever facility you're at or whatever, they've kind of met their, they're at their mental limit there. That's as far right. as it gets, but we know that we really have a lot of room to wiggle there. Right. Well, I like, I love that you bring that up because when we talk about these BQ mismatch, you know, in any physiology, like a pulmonary edema or these RSV, there's all this gunk down there. So simply giving these patients oxygen, the oxygen has nowhere to go if there's some in between the road. So really, again, PEEP is king here, which I love that you bring that up and, you know, more heavy on the PEEP. If you're on a hundred percent, you should be doing something with your PEEP probably, right? You should- you're on 105, you should really be thinking, maybe I can go up to 10 and maybe down to 50, 40%, um, because push that stuff out, give that oxygen a pathway to go to, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I would tell people, you know, I, you guys listen to me teach all the time, you know, and in the transport environment, I don't think that us being on hundred percent is a big deal, um, for the small times that we have them, but it especially is not a big deal for kids, but 
yeah, like we said, remember that that oxygen has nowhere to go if it doesn't have any force behind it. Um, same thing when we talk about our asthmatic kids, you know, you can give all the albuterol you want, but you're just going to be giving it to their posterior oral pharynx at some point with all the pressure that's in, you know, all that kind of pressure that's in their chest. You need to give, you need some force behind it to really get it where you need it to go. Right. Yeah. So do you, <clears throat> are people in the transport world or RTs that listen and people that really can mimic and uh, control the ventilator, what's your take on IPAP? Um, do you feel these children have any kind of obstructive physiology we should be worried about as far as air trapping with mucus plugs or anything like that? Definitely. So that's kind of easy to think about, you know, airs, you're going to be forcing air in, but the boogers um, and how their airways collapse um, are, is going to be how that air can't get back out. It's okay. not going to be as extreme, like as an asthma exacerbation, you know, where we start having those big air trapping things, but that's, it's definitely going to happen. So when you get farther in, so if we were going to do like separated out, like I said, phase one or phase two, phase one being, you know, your early RSV kiddos, you know, let's say phase two is they've been maintaining for a long time, compensating for a long time. They're dehydrated. Maybe do have like that bronchiolitis starting. So that global inflammation in their lungs, um, or even if they're days and days in, and now we're thinking about pneumonia, that's a kid that really needs BiPAP. Um, they need help and not that they need necessarily you know, they're pulling in good volumes, but giving them BiPAP is really taking that metabolic and physical demand off their body so that you can halt that, that cliff that's about ready to, that you're about ready to fall off. You need to take that workload off that baby. Sure. And I, I would say that's how I choose BiPAP sure. versus CPAP for these kids is that do they need my help breathing because they are so, so tired. You know, right. do not want to wait until I'm tipping off the cliff to start implementing BiPAP. I want to wait early. I want to put it in early. You know, are they retracting at multiple sites? They're tachycardic, they're tachypnic, they're dry. That's a kid that needs all the support I can give them. You know, sure. so with those kids, you know, you only need a little bit over to help augment their tidal volume. You don't need these huge, like 20 over five, 20 over eight. Sure. Um, because they don't really have problem expanding their lungs. You know, once you kind of give a little bit of pressure, their lungs will open and expand. So you only need a little bit over that peak level, you know? So if you were on CPAP before and you're already on CPAP of eight or 10, you just maintain that when you move to the next mode into BiPAP. Um, and then I would just probably maybe pick four or five over where you were, you know? So if you're on, let's say now you're on, four over eight, which is actually like 12 over eight on mo most vents, right? Right, sure. Um, and then just kind of look and see. I always talk about their exhale tidal volumes, but we know that non-invasive yeah. ventilation isn't 100%. Um, that's not, you're not going to get necessarily accurate volumes, but you'll be able to see kind of where your volumes are in general. And then mostly I'll look at their chest rise. Okay. When they take that breath, am I expanding their chest enough you know, or do they really look like they're still working hard to breathe? Because I want them not to work hard to breathe anymore. I want to take that load on for, for them. Sure. I need to go up from there and just take on more of that load for them. I will. So it's really that first few minutes on BiPAP is 
I mean, I probably mess with the settings 20 or 30 times just to make that kid look what I want, look the way I want. And I'll make a few settings and I'll watch four or five, six breaths, whatever, see if it looks any better, you know, tweak a few things. Um, whereas like an adult patient, you would do that as well, but you would like ask questions back and forth, you know, is this coming fast enough? Is it too much flow? We have to do that based on assessment in kids, you know, so you have to watch is that chest expanding really too quickly? Um, or do they really look like when you're, when your ventilator is giving that IPAP or that breath, are they still having to use their abdominal muscles? You know, that's, you really want to, take on that workload for them. Yeah. I think that's a great point you bring up, Melissa, because um, I've seen it before and I've done it before. And it's something that I have to be very conscious about it. Um, it's not as critical in adults, but it definitely critical in, pay, in, in pediatric patients. When you put them on the vent or you put them on BiPAP or, or, or whatever it is, you have to stand there and you've got to watch them and see exactly how is this working for them? And then make those adjustments, right? It's not, it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. You are yeah. constantly tweaking them. And hopefully, like you said, in that first few minutes, or in, even in that first, you know, 15, 20 minutes while you're at bedside and you're continuing those other therapies and you're getting them suctioned out. Now you're starting to see the, the benefit of, of the, the care that you've provided, right? Clearing out their mm-hmm. ways, getting more volume down in their lungs, oxygenation starts to improve. And now you're tweaking your, your, your IPAP, your PEEP, your FIO2, all those things to get them just dialed in. So I think it's a good point to kind of reiterate is that again, like I said, this is not a forget it and uh, set it and forget it kind of thing. You set them up and then you have to watch them closely to see how they respond to it. Yeah. And I, um, you know, we hear a lot of times about kids just not tolerating getting that mask on and stuff. They're going to cry. That's what they do. Yeah. Same thing. You're going to, you know, papoose them or, you know, really put them under that blanket and have people hold on to them and get that mask on. But I also start, um, start lower on my settings than I know I'm going to end up. But that first few breaths that I put on there, I'm trying to not overwhelm them and freak them out. Um, because like with an adult, you can't, you know, work, you can't talk them through it and things, yeah. like that. but you can also add, you know, a little bit of sedation and things like that to help calm them down. And we're really seeing that role of those set, those sedation drugs come into play specifically with BiPAP protocols. You know, these are, especially if you translate it from the adult world, this is a patient that's air hungry and scared and has anxiety, you know, and you're, you're going to put this whole mask on their face and really freak them out. That same, I think that we forget, but that same issue translates right into those babies, but all they can do is cry and fight. Right breathe against the ventilator. They can't reach up and rip it off like our adults do or say, I don't like it or it's too much. Um, So I will give a little bit of ketamine, things like that. I love ketamine for that Um, just to get them settled on there. And then my settings right when I first put them on are a little lower than I know that that I'm going to be just so that I don't freak them out and overwhelm them the first few breaths. And then once I have that mask on and I know I have a good seal, I start dialing up those settings pretty aggressively. And this is like on like in a 30 second type of scenario. It's not, they're not on five over five for, you know, minutes. They, they're probably on five over five for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds while I get that mask really strapped on and I'm assessing whether or not I feel leaks and things like that. And then I'm dialing that up really quickly 
once I know that I'm going to be able, once I know I have a good leak, I don't have any good leaks and then they can handle it. And you're going up with their peep first. Always. Yeah. So if they were on a high amount of peep first, yeah. you know, most of those modes, um, when you switch in from like CPAP or high flow nasal cannula, you'll be able to pick, like if you pick BiPAP on a, on a ventilator, you'll be able to pick those settings on the vent before you hit start and implement that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll cop, copy whatever PEEP and FiO2 they were on before, and then I'll add a little bit more for that IPAP. And what's nice about that when you switch into these BiPAP modes is that now you have pressure support a lot more. Right. And some of those other CPAP modes, you have CPAP plus pressure support, and that pressure support really comes into that pressure in the ventilator and that little push the ventilator is going to give when they take a deep breath in to help them augment their tidal volume. They may not need actual help making the tidal volume. They need help with the effort that's taking them to make that tidal volume. Gotcha. Good point. Real quick. Now you, you talked about, um, these kids, they regularly need repeat suctioning throughout transport, Mm -hmm. right? So now you've got them on the, the scuba mask. Um, is there any strategies, um, that, you know, we can use to minimize the effect of breaking the seal on that mass so we can get them suctioned out quickly? Um, or do you find that these, these patients do recruit really quickly or is it really not like once we've got them really well cleaned out and we've got them settled on, on the mask, um, and, and we've got our numbers dialed in, do you see that the, they tolerate that, that break in, in the mass seal and the interruption of, of positive pressure ventilation well, uh, so that you can get them suctioned out again during transport? Yeah. So you said it right. Like if you, as long as you take that time before they go on and really make sure that they're suctioned out, um, for transport wise, like most of the time you can, you can get through most of an entire transport without having to do it again. Yeah. They just like, they're really great at compensating. They're really great at recovering too. So, um, yes, you're de-recruiting, you're popping them off. You are doing all those things, but you, you're going to have to do it at some point. If those boogers, if, if you see that, you know, your end title is starting to climb your, um, sats are starting to just trend downward. You know, they're start, they're chested, they're using more muscles. They're starting to have more retraction sites than they used to. You're like, that's it. I got to suction them. I got to do it. Yeah. Um, especially because, you know, if we're on these modes, you're going to be delivering that whole dry air. They are going to be humidifying it through their own nose, but that's, it's still more than what they can normally do. So some of these therapies we know are going to could actually make them worse. So we have to just stay on top of those secretions while they're in that really acute phase. So yeah, you're going to have to pop them off, but normally they'll recover quickly. Just have all your stuff ready to go. Um, There's two of you at the bedside. So when I used to do it in the back of the ambulance um, at children's, you know, the nurse would pop them off the mask. I'd be right there ready to go. I'd suction them really quickly. And then she'd put the mask back on and hold it on with a seal to just recover them and get that peep going quickly. Nice. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> so just to reiterate with the non-invasive, uh, PEEP is going to be king, right? It's not mm-hmm. just the oxygen. We want to make sure we're giving them positive pressure because they do have a VQ mismatch. And I really like to reiterate this because I hit this home because there is a mucus plugging and there is some 
um, there's going to be some error, but we're not treating this like an obstructive patient, right? We're, we're giving the, the IPAP is more for comfort and more for the work of breathing and stuff, correct? More, more to help them kind of calm down before they hit that cliff. Yeah, really, you just want to take that meta, that metabolic workload off of them, you know, because they're belly breathing, they're using all those retraction sites, they, they're getting tired, really. So BiPAP is really to offload that respiratory load from them. Um, you know, and as they progress farther in there, it may turn to you have to do a lot more aggressive um, BiPAP settings, so more IPAP. Um, and that's really for those kids that have progressed to like pneumonia and things like that. So that is a kid that probably is going to need help with that CO2 removal, really, because that's what we think about with IPAP and EPAP. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the higher your IPAP number or the bigger difference between that IPAP and EPAP, that's really where CO2 is exchanged. Right. So if you truly have a kid that has a CO2 problem. And so that's a good side note to talk about is that when I go in there, depending on how bad they look, um, and if I want to know, do I truly need BiPAP? I'm going to have to draw a VBG or an ABG. Um, I really need to know whether or not they are maintaining respiratory wise. You know, if you, if you need to know oxygen status, you're going to have to draw an ABG. Um, otherwise, a VBG or a cap gas will work just fine for CO, for wondering how they're ventilating. Right. Um, but if their CO2 is rising and they are trying really hard and they're already really, t- you're, you're going to have to do that work for them. So. Sure you, all that information is good so that you don't have to kind of guess, you know, ways to get around guessing in this transport world. Um, And that's one of them. And so pretty easy when you walk in the room, if, especially if that kid has a working IV or something like that, if you can ask someone to, Hey, will you grab a VBG for me while I kind of resuscitate, resuscitate this kid? I'm going to suction them, probably put them on CPAP or BiPAP. And then you'll really know how aggressive to put your settings once that VBG comes back. Right. No, that's, that's a really good point. So kind of in that cute phase, we love our CPAP, we love our PEEP, mm-hmm. but as that kid tuckers out on top of the mucus plugging and they're not pulling as much volume as we think is appropriate, that's where we can start to see this CO2 rising and they're going to need more of that IPAP and more help there. So yeah, I, yeah, that's good to know, kind of keep that in the back of your head um, that we can kind of have a mixed uh, presentation here, um, depending on mm-hmm. how far down they are in the phase. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Every time if you get them settled and they look great and then something starts to happen and they start to look, start to trend and look worse again, you're just going to have to suction them again. It's just okay. the secretions are getting thicker or overwhelming or whatever it is. Um, it's all about that. Okay. And, and secretion removal really. Okay. So just a couple other touch um, points I want to touch on as far as treatment goes. Um, this has been, uh, you know, if you look up RSV right now, I swear, I see a bunch of kids on nebulizers. We know in the transport world, it's, it's a nebulizer. It's a kid with a, a wheeze. It's a kid that can't breathe well, put them on a neb. What is your take on nebulizers in the setting of bronchiolitis caused by RSV? Yeah. So, um, you can look it up. It's evidence-based, um, through the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, and look in different respiratory care journals and things like that. So it is, albuterol is contraindicated in most RSV cases. So there, it really has to do with that smooth muscle relaxation. So what happens if we have this um, airway and this kid is really grunting and trying to keep that airway open? Right. 
you know, and there's already, it's already filled, you know, 50%, 60% full of secretions in there. And then we give albuterol. What does albuterol do? It's a smooth muscle relaxer, right? Um, so it's, it's going to take that airway and basically make it really floppy. Right. It's going to be really hard for that kid to maintain their own peep. Um, and now you've just taken, you know, a decently open airway and it's become very floppy and closed. So that's why after you give an albuterol neb, these kids, if they look worse, you'll know that not to continue that. Um, and I think that in the adult world, we're really trying, we're trying everything we can. Um, so just remember that if you start this therapy, you know, and albuterol is quick, right? We're supposed to see a result within five to 15 minutes. If it works or not, if that kid does not look better after that neb or after the start of that continuous neb, don't be afraid to turn it off because you don't want, you don't want to just ride that out and make that even worse and make every single bit of their airways just floppy and relaxed when they're just trying so hard to maintain their own feet. Okay. So it's not out of the question, obviously for the people listening in the transport world, when we go a lot of times, sometimes the NEB's already been given, but mm-hmm. it's not out of the question to trial it, but really understand that that is not the main focus of this treatment. You're going to give it, or if it's been given, ask the provider or yourself, look at that child and see, did he get any better? Do you feel like his work of breathing got better? Maybe you get a VBG before and after whatever you're doing. And if not, just don't even mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's really not indicated, you know, even when we're seeing these group and RSV kids together, we're still seeing a lot of albuterol and um, neither of those disease processes really respond to albuterol. So if you, um, like we said, with croup and stuff like that, you can try trial some racemic epi and see if that helps. Um, but even racemic epi doesn't have great results in croup kids. Um, it really has to do with, cold, you know, that cool mist therapy, um, calming them down, keeping, making sure that inflammation doesn't get worse, and then really getting those steroids on board and waiting for those steroids to really kick in. Um, and that just shows you that disease process too, why adults really don't get fruit like that is because our airways just don't have that hyper reactivity that these kids' airways and tissues really do. So, And I was just reading an article about racemic epi for RSV. And I, I know you would agree with this, that there's really no point to be given that in RSV either. I, you know, I know, like you said, it caused croup, but especially in our lower airway, which is the more common to present with our bronchiolitis mm-hmm. and pneumonia, racemic epi has no uh, shouldn't be in this either, in this algorithm. No, you know, and, and I won't tell people it isn't worth a shot to, you know, try if that kid is starting to look worse and worse. I don't want you to take that out of your toolbox, but okay. um, it's not really ever high priority for me. Okay. It's really with these types of therapies, it's really um, helping them work through the secretion, helping the secretions, helping them oxygenate, which we know that it's not really oxygen we need to dump in there. We just need to help them maintain their own heat um, and those supportive measures. So they're right. dehydrated. They've been to Kipnik for days. So they have a lot of insensible fluid loss. So these kids need um, a lot of fluid when you show up, not just one single 20 per kilo bolus. You know, sometimes they're sometimes they're up to 60 per kilo boluses, you know, after a couple um, definitely maintenance fluids. I mean, these kids are not eating or drinking because they feel like crap. Yeah especially if they have a fever too already, that's going right. to be their tachycardia like 
it's so much supportive, but I, we're seeing a lot, we're seeing so many people like, oh my God, I need to start a NEB. I need to do this. I need to do this. But really it's, it's those few, everybody thinks of them as like supportive measures, but that is, those are like the definitive treatments for RSV. And when you touched on fluid, I was going to ask you about it. Are you adding sugar with your, with your fluids? For these kids? Mostly with their maintenance fluids, not with their boluses. We bolus, don't, don't worry about it as much. No, we don't bolus with D5 or D10. Or sure. That. Um, so just normal saline boluses. Make sure that, um, that that fluid, if you're already having temperature issues, make sure the, the temperature of your fluid is appropriate. Okay. And, you know, make sure that you're giving those fluid boluses liberally. Sure. You know, you know you're going to give one and have the second one ready to go. And really you're giving it for an effect. So if you give one and they're still tachycardic, you're going to give another. If they're sure. still tachycardic, you're going to give another. I mean, babies do not have these cardiac issues that we're worried about overfluiding them like we are with adults. Granted, we're not going to hang a bag, you know, a liter bag and let it go in. But um, really they can take these fluid boluses really well. They're very dehydrated. So it's good to remember, we're not going in the room and looking at their blood pressure and being like, oh, they don't need fluid. We're looking at that heart rate and remembering they've been to Kipnik poly for a day or so their, their metabolic rate is out of this, you know, it's, it's spiked and they've been hot. So these kids mm-hmm. almost always need some, a li- little bit of fluid. Yeah. The two things I'm always looking at is, um, they're, if they're tachycardic and what is, what is their like cap refill? Cause that's going to tell me a lot about um, how their body's maintaining. So not just their fingers and their hands and their feet. I want to see centrally, um, what kind of cap refill they have, you know, I want to know that after those fluid boluses, you know, my heart rates come down by 20 or 40 points, you know, and my cap refill that was five centrally is, you know, three to four now or whatever. Those are ways I know that those fluid boluses have worked. Um, Blood pressure is so, so late. And literally like late, like sometimes you can have a kid that's bradycardic and nearly arresting that still has like a decent blood pressure. Sure. Wow. Yeah. So you can't rely on those things on kids. It really has to be, you know, knowing that on that respiratory side of the triangle, they can't change their tidal volume. They can't do those things. So just the fact that they're tachypneic, all they can do is increase their respiratory rate. You know, adults, we can take bigger breaths, wider, you know, we can really change our tidal volume. Kids don't do that. They just breathe faster. So already if they're tachypneic, they've already put into motion the only compensatory mechanism they really have there. That they have, yeah. You know, so on that other side, you know, if they're pale and um, their cap refill sucks and they look tired, you know, that's a kid that needs a lot of help, a lot of fluid, you know all those resuscitative measures that we were talking about. So really it's, it's, I love it, right? These kids, I guess it's fair to say that supportive measures is everything in these kids, suction, oxygen, and just staying on top of it. If you're going to any medications, Tylenol, steroids, and fluids maybe are the other things that you might be reaching for. Is that safe to say? Yeah. But other than that, it is truly, you know, and we always say this, but I think it's, it is, it's being aggressive, suctioning, um, and, and really getting on top of it, uh, before they go over that. And, and I think that's great because I think in a lot of other kids like asthma and stuff like that, there are a a slew of meds you should get on board and it's going to help these kids. But when we're talking about 
what we're dealing with right now, it's, you know, there are some medications, but really the biggest is fluids and the rest is just getting in there and being aggressive. So that's awesome. That's good to know. Well, that's sweet, uh, Sean. And then, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to leave it at that because we're going to say this is a good scenario and we're not going to innovate this kid and we're not going to get into it because I would like to say, and and actually I would like to say that Melissa, you're really a big uh, proprietor of this is giving these kids a chance on that non-invasive, correct? I mean, getting them on that BiPAP or CPAP and really giving them a full chance before we're going to go ahead and, and do some. Yeah. And really like any kid that you're going to categorize as respiratory distress and or respiratory failure, right? as long as they are have a patent airway, I'm going to give them a shot on good, high non-invasive um, settings. Okay. I'm going to suction them out. I'm going to do all those things we talked about. I'm going to start fluid boluses, and then I'm really going to put them, I'm put them on that scuba mask and start dialing that up. And really, I'm going to take over as much of that workload. You're really, you're, it's just like you went on the ventilator. You know, you want to, you want to take over their entire tidal volume. You can do that on BiPAP. You can do that so that they, when they take that little inspiratory, um, you know, that little negative inspiratory force, the ventilator is going to do all the work for them in BiPAP, sure. you know, and they can really rest and start to oxygenate, start to blow off that CO2. You know, you can do all that on BiPAP. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And you guys know, like I showed and I reference, you know, EM crit a lot, but they have some really aggressive um, protocols on there non-invasive protocols is mm-hmm. anything you can do to keep from intubating um, some of these disease processes is, is really important. Um, and I think that even once you intubate these kids, if you have to, you have to have to go back to what you were doing in the first place. Sure. Are you giving, so now you intubated them. Now what, you know, how are you going to thin out those secretions now? How are you going to manage those secretions now? Just because you intubated them doesn't mean you fix the problem. Sure. They, their lungs are still filling up with boogers. So, you know, you really have to now think about, you know, how am I going to suction them now? How am I going to keep them humidified? How, um, you know, how many fluid boluses am I going to give? You know, I need to treat this fever. I need to all these things and not just get focused on, okay, I intubated them. I fixed it now. You know? Yeah. I love that. I think people forget. I mean, you can do a lot of damage with BiPAP. I mean, it's basically being on a ventilator. You just don't have a tube, you know? I mean, obviously I'm sure someone heard that. I'm going to have a comment, but you can do a lot more on the ventilator, but you can do, you can do quite a bit on that BiPAP. It's pretty impressive. I mean, you can, you're running the vent basically. It's just, you got a little support there. So yeah, no, I love pressure control ventilation really, you know, and, um, I love that you said, I'm sure there'll be a lot of different opinions about this. And, you know, that's the one thing about it, it's, it's good and bad in the ventilation world, meaning there is not like a, there's not a lot of cut and dry um, things in this ventilation world. You know, right. that's, that's good in the fact that, you know, you, if you get a big group of really smart people together and you have a patient that's difficult to ventilate, you can get, you can try lots of things. Sure. Um, but then, you know, that also means that, you know, people that need some really cut and dry rules, um, they, there really aren't a ton of them, you know, right. in the ventilation world. So what I can tell people is that I am not going to tell you to do anything that I 
would not or have not done myself. Um, and really my, everything I tell you is because of my experience and what I've done and what I've seen with these kids. Um, it's not something I read or anything like that. All of everything that I teach comes from my own experiences and trial and error and working in the PICU and the NICU and working on these transport teams and really working through these difficult ventilation patients myself. Yeah, no. And, and we appreciate it because, um, yeah, this is a, uh, you know, turning out to be a pandemic and, uh, there's a lot and these are good tools to have. So I really appreciate that. I'm so glad I work with you so I can just call you. Um, Sean, do you, you have want any- to touch on, do you want me to just touch on like really quickly, just some normal peds vent settings? So yeah, yeah. Let's do some vent stuff. Yeah. hundred percent. I think it's, I think it's good, right? You know, yeah. We know that these patients all respond differently. Um, I think it's great to give some people a starting point, right? Mm-hmm. As long as, it, as long as we make sure that we reiterate the fact that it is a starting point, right? And yeah. you have to, you have to be aggressive and you have to be willing and capable, confident to immediately start making changes. So go for it. What, what do you got? Yeah. What are you, what are your pearls yeah. for getting these kids started? So the really good thing, you know, that you'll see is that the same rules are basically going to apply for adults versus kids. So um, if, depending on the ventilator you have, obviously, but in the pediatric ICU world, um, and even toward in some of the neonatal ICU world, we really are more focused on volume guarantee ventilation. So um, when we do pressure control ventilation, we know that you know, volume can kind of suffer, right? So you're going to set it, you're going to stay at this certain pressure, but your lungs based on the compliance, you know, is how your, how those, that tidal volume is going to change, you know? So really we're seeing a shift when I first started as an RT, you know, you pressure ventilated all neonates and all, you know, kids in the PICU. And really because of the great volume modes, and then just really understanding that you know, underventilating these kids can put them at risk for those secondary infections. So if you are in a pressure control world mm-hmm. and ventilator that you have and you're going to use, you're still needing to target those certain tidal volumes. So normal tidal volumes for kids it would that you would for adults. So I'm always shooting for eight cc's if I can. Right. Um, obviously, if you have a reason to drop down to six, meaning, you know, you have pulmonary contusions, you have asthma, you have something like that. But RSV, pneumonia, those types of infections are not a reason for me to drop down to six cc's per kilo. Okay. Um, so <laughs> if I was going to say it, I if, if I can, based on the ventilator, I'm going to choose a volume guarantee mode. I am going to shoot for six cc's per kilo. Okay. Um, if for some reason I can't and I have to drop down to six or eight cc's per kilo, did I say six? I would always shoot for eight cc's per kilo. If I have to drop down to six, I have to remember that I'm going to have to compensate other ways. So that's that ARDSNET protocol that's going to come back into play over and over again. And it, and it um, still applies to kids like it does for adults. So everybody, you, everybody, <laughs> right. so if you decide to do a lower tidal volume strategy. You have to increase the rate and you have to increase the peak. You have to do all three things together. I still see um, places that I go in and they say, oh, this patient, you know, got hit by a car and they have a pulmonary contusion. So, you know, they're on six cc's per kilo. So I walk in and I have a huge adult male 
you know, on 410 cc's um, tidal volume, a rate of 14 and a PEEP of five. That's not a low tidal volume strategy. Right. That's under ventilation in and of itself. And, you know, in that specific scenario, I have a gas to support it. You know, sure. when I that gas, just knowing, um, you know, you have a trauma patient that now has a gas of 71979. <laughs> That is, that's not good. And that patient didn't probably have a ventilation problem to begin with. But so worried about the contusion, but they caused, yeah. they caused this is, damage. I mean, the other way. This is this hill I'm going to die on is that <laughs> I have a reason to do six C's per kilo and you have to do two other things. You have to do all three of those things. You don't get to pick and choose what part of the yards net, you know, protocol you're going to use. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it, do right. all of it you know, so you normal respiratory rate for these kids. Um, you know, if you, if you have to intubate them and they were breathing 70 before I tell people a good place to start is once they're intubated is probably half that, you know, half of their, whatever that intrinsic rate was. Um, obviously you'll have to go up or down for there. So if you, you end up in the thirties, you know, and your end title starts to climb or you get a gas and it's bad, go up from there. But once you've taken their airway and now you're giving them really good tidal volume, good peep. Um, and they shouldn't need that fast respiratory rate because you're augmenting their tidal volume and the, all the things that they couldn't do. They don't have the compensatory mechanisms to do. So um, they shouldn't need those fast rates if your tidal volume and peep are appropriate. Okay. You know, and you can go up, you may have to wiggle a little bit based on their entitles once you correlate them with the gases and stuff, but kids, eight cc's per kilo, Look at their normal respiratory rates um, and try and mimic those respiratory rates probably a little bit more based on that. PEEP minimum is five. I did five and six of PEEP on 23 and 24 week babies. Wow. So don't villainize PEEP. Kids are <laughs> more PEEP dependent than adults are. Um, so that's the minimum I would go. And then the minute you know you have too many boogers and obstructed, like any of that stuff, just start dialing up your peep a little bit at a time. You don't have to go from five to 10 to 15, you know, you can go from, you know, five to six to eight. You can do those little jumps um, that will make your FiO2 work way more effectively. Are you going to eat G-suction these, these kiddos too? You can get Lots. down in there. Yeah. Lots, you know, and that's the good thing, you know, when Sean was talking about de-recruiting and things like that. So that's a good thing once they're intubated that, that need to pop them off. If you put a Ballard on, you know, or if you have, um, I can't remember the little valve that you have, I think it's called like a Fuso valve or something, but um, those are things that allow those, that allow you not to de-recruit when you suction and things like that. So, you know, in the transport world, we should really be maintaining that Ballard suction just like they do in the hospital. Right. Um, it's going to make our lives that much easier. We're getting kind of all over here, but I have another question. Are you going to give a little saline down there for ET section or are you just going? I mean, like if you look and it's just like boogers. Yeah. I mean, if it's like bubbling up in the tube and stuff, not normally. Yeah. Um, unless, you know, when you're suctioning and you see it in the tube, but then you don't see it in the suction tubing, mm. that is those secretions are too thick. Okay. So I would just be ready, have it on there, ready to go. You don't always need it, but I'm going to have it ready to go really quickly. Um, depending on how thick those secretions are. Remember, just like BiPAP, once you've intubated them, uh, especially in the transport world, you're, there's no humidity. You know, we're not putting humidity on these. So be ready for these secretions to start getting thicker once you intubate them. So 
like I said, you didn't take away the problem when you intubated them. They may look better transiently, but you, we still haven't fixed the problem. And in fact, some of our therapies might make the underlying problem, which is their boogers and RSV, um, a little bit worse if we dry them out. So to reiterate the ventilation, specifically to them, but kind of general concept, eight cc's is where you're starting. Um, mm -hmm. If you're going down to six, you're going down to four, you can't forget your PEEP, you can't forget your rate. Always pull out that ARGENET protocol because we want to always ensure we're getting them the minute ventilation they deserve. Um, continue to suction them. And then as far as rate goes, as far as these RSV kids, unless there's a, I guess, a metabolic process or a reason that they're breathing 70 times a minute and you really feel you need to keep that minute ventilation high, it's appropriate to cut that in half because it's probably just increased worker breathing because they felt like they couldn't breathe. Now on the ventilator, as long as CO2 is appropriate, as long as metabolically they're appropriate, you can probably cut that in half and uh, lie within their normal physiologic range. Yeah. And then so then for pressure control ventilation, if you're on a, if you, if that's the world you live in, um, a lot of people want to know like where to start um, yeah. so I tell people 20 over five, 20 over six, same rate that we talked about before. Um, remember, make sure you're looking at that eye time as well. So depending on which ventilator you use, um, or if you're not familiar with what kind of eye time to put, make sure that your eye time is not too fast. A lot of these ventilators, when you switch into infant or pediatric mode, hmm. pick that eye time for you. And a lot of times that eye time is way too aggressive. Okay. Um, you know, in when we're transporting these kids 30 days and above, at the lowest, I think I would ever go is 0.4, but I, I want to like give a blanket statement of 0.5, you know, so okay. second. Huh. Um, you know, because you'll do way more damage with that fast eye time than you will a lot of the other settings that are not tweaked appropriately. You know, right. that eye right. time is going to really give you that long expiratory time. And so if that patient really had oxygenation problems, but not a lot of ventilation problems, now you're going to be blowing off so much CO2 because- sure such an aggressive I to E ratio. Um, so that's why I hate it when the vent picks those things for me. I really want to have, I like to pick every vent setting I can. So, you know, I say 20 over five, 0.5 I time, you know, give them a normal respiratory rate for what they should have. You can go a, a little above a little, you know, if 30 is normal, going up to 40 is not a big deal in those kids. So an aggressive respiratory rate that mimics their intrinsic respiratory rate, not their respiratory distress respiratory rate. Right. And then normal peeps, five or six a peep, and then go up from there, you know? So, and then how do we evaluate if that works? Um, you know, is that pressure control of 20 that we're putting on there generating good tidal volume? Right. So now's where you can rely on that exhaled tidal volume because now you have a closed system now that you're intubated. Um, especially if you have a cuff tube, don't put an uncuffed tube in. There you go. There's the big one. Uncuffed tubes are for neonatal. I <laughs> only. <laughs> so especially when you have that closed system, now your exhale tidal volumes are how you're going to decide if that 20 is good enough. So right. thing, you're going to do that calculation of what is on the low end, what is six cc's per kilo look like for this kid and what does eight cc's look like. And then you need to make sure that pressure control number is giving you that tidal volume within that range. You know, if your tidal volume is returning, your exhale tidal volume is too low, you're going to go up on that pressure. And then inversely, if it's too high, um, then you're going to go down on that pressure. Right. No, I, it's awesome. Just like both of you guys reiterated, this is not a set it, forget it. 
whether it's BiPAP, high flow, even on the vent, you're setting your pressure. You need to make sure what you're gambling with, I always say, is the pressure you're giving is the volume you're getting back. And everyone's different. And I always like you say this too, but I reiterate just because they're on the vent doesn't mean you can't look at your patient. Their breathing should get better. They should look better overall, especially if they're over breathing the vent and you have a pressure support set. Look how they're, look how they're, are they still tugging? Do they still look like crap? Is that just because they're asynchronous or you're not giving them enough of what they're requiring? Um, And I love your aspect on the eye time, because if we're focusing here on a true VQ mismatch, the longer the eye time, like people know, longer the eye time, the more you allow for that pressure to be high, you're going to get more oxygen in, um, unless we're dealing with a CO2 issue, which is a whole different podcast. But in this area, we're talking about not being able to oxygenate that better eye time, uh, air on the side of that, which I love that you say that because I think some of these transport uh, ventilators, I can't speak to the hospital as much, but they do set super quick, like really quick air into there. And sometimes it's, that's, especially if you have to give a kid a lot of pressure, that's a lot of pressure in a very small amount of time, you know, I mean, yeah. can, and you're, you're trying to pit. slam that large amount of pressure, that large volume right. in through very congested airways. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're, you're going to have to tweak that up and down while you kind of work through those secretions and things like that. And, you know, especially in like volume control ventilation, you know, make sure your alarms are set tight, you know, so the ventilator auto set those things for you, but they're kind of wide alarms. You know, I want to know sooner than later, especially like in volume control ventilation, you know, if it's only, if you just suction them and intubated them and they, their airways are nice and clean right now, you know, it may only take 18, a pip of 18 to give them that eight cc's per kilo. But if you're not paying attention and that vent auto sets at 40, then that ventilator is not going to alarm until 40, which means However, that, you know, that pressure change from 18 to 40, as they're getting less and less compliant, as those boogers are reaccumulating, you had all that opportunity to really get ahead of it and maintain these secretions or maintain um, whatever compliance issue is happening. So make sure those alarms are set tight so that you're working with the ventilator. That ventilator is super smart, will tell you lots of things. So I set my alarms really tight because I want to know sooner than later that things are changing. Yep. Well, that was great. Sean, do you have anything else you want to ask? I have nothing else that I can think of. Um, That was awesome. Thank you very much. Melissa, where can people, we're going to post you on some of our social media on the podcast, but we're not the experts. So where can people find you? Uh, where can they reach out? Give us some contact info for us. And we'll, we'll post some of this, but tell us where you where we can reach out. Yeah. So I have a little side business um, called Beyond the BBM. And really, it came about from just a lot of coworkers and friends in the business just saying, hey, you know, we don't get a lot of respiratory education. Can you come do some education for us? So, you know, I eventually had some people, John. Um, you know, really encourage me to make make it something real. So I have a business on the side, and that that is what I do. I just teach respiratory. Awesome. Um, that could be if you're a if you're a place that doesn't have ventilators or use transport ventilators. There's a million other ways you guys ventilate people. So um, I will I can adapt my teaching to whatever your department needs. So beyondthebvm.com is where you can reach me you guys want have questions or want to talk about trainings and things like that um 
I'm dynamic. I'll do whatever. You know, obviously I started my business right when, right before the pandemic started. So um, we are just kind of getting back to more in-person stuff now, but definitely online and Zoom trainings are available and whatever your company needs. So. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. We hope to have you back. Um, your wisdom in the event is awesome, uh, whether it's adult or peed. So thanks for hanging out with us. Anytime. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> Melissa. Thank you, guys. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for spending a little bit of your time with us. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flight Grip Podcast. Bye for now.